0: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 167th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, November 8th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment, as I usually do, to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal members, all of which signed up just this last week to support the show, and that includes Crystal Rose, Joshua Lighthill, Michael Keller, Mike Murdoch, Nicholas E. Pultorek, Nicholas Torres, Pedro Martinez, Ross Coyle, Rio M, Sam, Sunil Shai, and The Homeland Report. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or you can check out patreon.com. Forward slash humanist report. So, on today's episode, first we'll talk about new net neutrality news, including an unexpected victory for proponents of net neutrality, as well as an attack on public broadband by FCC Commissioner Mike O'Reilly. Journalist Ken Klippenstein talks about how the United States' involvement in the 2900 coup catalyzed the migrant crisis we're now seeing in the news, and why Ted Cruz is a hypocrite for attacking them. And additionally, we'll get into the recap of our election coverage, and this includes the last minute effort by Brian Kemp to win by cheating in Georgia. I'll tell you about the races that I was paying attention to heading into election day as well as the election results. We'll talk about why Barbara Lee should become the next Speaker of the House and what Trump's unhinged response was the day after the election. Also, newly elected progressive Democrat Rashida Tlaib trolled Donald Trump but in a substantive way. And Bernie Sanders gave us a glimpse of his 2020 presidential campaign. So that's on the agenda for today's show. Let's go ahead and get into it. I hope you guys enjoy the program. Before Ajit Pai and the FCC voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections last year, there was already a legal battle that was being waged over the 2015 net neutrality rules because the same telecom industry that lobbied for Ajit Pai to kill these rules was already trying to get them killed in the courts by suing over the 2015 Title II net neutrality protections. And unfortunately for lobbyists of companies like AT&T and Verizon, a court did not rule in their favor. And this is why they still were lobbying for Ajit Pai to repeal those Title II rules, because they couldn't win that way. Now, this legal battle has been ongoing And it hasn't gone in their favor. And today, we got another update to the old 2015 legal battle over net neutrality, and also a pretty significant legal victory. Surprisingly so, because the Supreme Court actually rejected their appeal once they lost. That is, the appeal of telecom lobbyists, and as a result, legally, Title II stands. For now, because remember, we're juggling multiple legal cases when it comes to net neutrality, because this is pertaining to the 2015 uh, securing of net neutrality under Title II. And now there's two more cases that uh, were catalyzed after the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality. We have 22 attorneys general from states trying to sue the FCC to get them to undo the repeal of net neutrality. And also we have the Justice Department suing the state of California for codifying their own net neutrality rules into law. But at least when it comes to this issue we did get a legal victory, which is good for a number of reasons. So for more details on this specific case, we're going to go to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, who reports, the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear the broadband industry's challenge of Obama-era net neutrality rules. The Federal Communications Commission's 2015 order to impose net neutrality rules and strictly regulate broadband was already reversed by Trump's pick for FCC chairman, Ajit Pai. But AT&T and broadband industry lobby group were still trying to overturn court decisions that upheld the FCC order. A win for the broadband industry could have prevented future administrations from imposing a similarly strict set of rules. The Trump administration supported the industry's case asking the U.S. Supreme Court to vacate the Obama-era ruling. But the Supreme Court today said it has denied petitions filed by AT&T and broadband lobby groups, NCTA, CTIA, U.S. Telecom, and the American Cable Association. Four of nine justices must agree to hear a case, but only three voted to grant the petitions. According to the Supreme Court announcement today, Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, quote, would grant the petitions, vacate the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which upheld the FCC's net neutrality order and remand to that court with instructions to dismiss the cases as moot. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh recused themselves from the case. Roberts owned stock in AT&T-owned Time Warner, while Kavanaugh took part in the case when he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Stoher noted. Kavanaugh dissented from the ruling upholding net neutrality rules in 2017, arguing that the rules violate the First Amendment rights of internet service providers by preventing them from exercising editorial control over internet content. Today's Supreme Court decision is good news for supporters of net neutrality because it means that the D.C. Circuit Court's previous decision upholding both the FCC's classification of broadband as a telecommunications service and its rules prohibiting broadband providers from blocking or degrading internet content remains in place, Senior Counsel John Bergmeyer of Consumer Advocacy Group Public Knowledge said. So this is phenomenal news for supporters of net neutrality, and my hope is that this is going to strengthen our legal argument when it comes to net neutrality and the war over net neutrality that's currently um, being waged legally. Now, this does give us a little bit more insight into how this will go for us, because for one, Brett Kavanaugh recused himself here because he already ruled on this at the lower level so what does that mean in the event there's enough justices to actually hear out net neutrality at the supreme court level well kavanaugh may still recuse himself and seeing that chief justice john roberts recused himself since it's a conflict of interest since he owns stock in time warner well he may also have to recuse himself so if both of those justices refuse to hear the current net neutrality cases, or if they do hear it and they recuse themselves, what does that mean for us? Well, if all of the justices hold strong and they vote the way that we expect them to, that is that the, uh, the liberal justices vote to uphold net neutrality and the conservative justices vote to strike down net neutrality, that means we could very well win this by a 4-3 to margin. So this is good news, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, um, make you feel as if it's it's a sure bet because this doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna win. It doesn't guarantee a win by no means, but it does give us a really good sign that we actually do stand a chance because net neutrality legally it is something that's been upheld. And if it's been upheld, then clearly Ajit Pai repealing this order, well, perhaps they'll look to that precedent and see clearly this was illegitimate and um, they'll strike it down. So look, I I have no idea how this is going to go, but this does give me a little bit more of an optimistic look heading into the courts when it comes to the legal battle regarding net neutrality because as it stood in the event Kavanaugh and John Roberts did not recuse themselves, well, I mean, undoubtedly, it would be the case that net neutrality wouldn't have survived if it made its way to the Supreme Court. Certainly, if all conservative justices heard this case and they accepted this 2015 um, challenge to the FCC's Title II protections, they would have voted against it. But since they were surprisingly principled and decided to recuse themselves for good reason, uh this helps us so again i don't want to get your hopes up but understand that we need every single victory to make sure that supporters of net neutrality don't feel demoralized and feel as if this is a lost cause because this is in no way a lost cause and it's going to be a long and lengthy legal battle but this kind of gives us a look at how judges might roll and it kind of gives me the impression that this Probably won't make it to the Supreme Court. If John Roberts can't hear a net neutrality case because of uh, a conflict of interest, then odds are he's going to recuse himself if this makes it to the Supreme Court again. So, Um, if he remains principal, that is. So look, this is good news all around. Take a win where you can get it. But uh, this isn't the end of the net neutrality legal battle. Far from it. But I mean, still do what you can to fight for public broadband at the local level, because if there's going to be anything that ends this debate once and for all, it's going to be public broadband in your city. So do what you can to make sure that that's on the agenda of your city council. But in the meantime, um, let's celebrate this because this is definitely good news. Ever since the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality in 2017, there's been a really large push for public broadband at the local level because a lot of people are now realizing, correctly so, that this is the way you end the net neutrality debate once and for all. If you have public broadband in your city— in the way that Chattanooga, Tennessee does, then you control it, you own it, so you don't have to worry about large multi-billion dollar companies like Comcast or AT&T blocking or throttling content. But now that there's been this wave of momentum for public broadband, well, the individuals who were against net neutrality and who voted to kill net neutrality are starting to take notice. And one of them is FCC Commissioner Mike O'Reilly. Now, this is someone who did vote with Ajit Pai to kill Title II net neutrality in 2017. And here's what he has to say about municipal broadband. And it's so absurd. I think it's laughable. So as John Brodkin of Ars Technica reports, a Republican on the Federal Communications Commission claimed that municipal broadband networks pose a unique threat to First Amendment free speech rights, but provided no compelling evidence to back his claim. FCC Commissioner Michael O'Reilly made his claim in a speech last week at the Media Institute's Free Speech America event. O'Reilly said that broadband providers run by local governments quote, have engaged in significant First Amendment mischief. But O'Reilly's only evidence to support his claim was the network's acceptable use policies, which contain boilerplate language similar to the policies used by private ISPs such as Comcast and AT&T. Back to the FCC, I would be remiss if my address omitted a discussion of a lesser known but particularly ominous threat to the First Amendment in the age of the internet, state-owned and operated broadband networks, O'Reilly said. After criticizing the Obama-era FCC for trying to promote municipally-run networks, O'Reilly continued, quote, In addition to creating competitive distortions and misdirecting scarce resources that should go to bringing broadband to the truly unserved areas, municipal broadband networks have engaged in significant First Amendment mischief, as Professor Enrique Armillo of the Elon University School of Law has shown in his research, municipalities such as Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Wilson, North Carolina, have been notorious for their use of speech codes in the terms of service of state-owned networks, prohibiting users from transmitting content that falls into amorphous categories like hateful or threatening. These content-based restrictions implicating protected categories of speech would never pass muster under strict scrutiny. In addition to conditioning network use upon waiver of the user's First Amendment rights, these terms are practically impossible to interpret objectively and are inherently up to the whim of a bureaucrat's discretion. How frightening. Yes, how frightening because you know these bureaucrats who are (laughs) always plotting and scheming to make a profit. Oh wait, that's actually the multi-billion dollar companies that you hope to work for once you leave the uh, FCC. Now, as the article states, he's conveniently omitting the fact that private ISPs also have the same type of language. The only difference is that if you find something that you don't like, well, since you own it, since the public owns it, you actually have a stake in controlling that, right? Because if you don't like the way that your city is running your broadband service, you simply petition them. You go to them, you call them, you protest. But if you don't like what Comcast does, you have absolutely no way to redress your grievances. But if you own it, if it's publicly owned, then you actually can't take action to change things that you don't like. So even if what he's saying is true here, it's still not a very compelling argument because... Again, if the public pays for broadband, then they own it. They have a say in what happens and how it's operated. So this is such a comically absurd critique of public broadband that I don't know how he could possibly say this with a straight face because all he's really doing is I don't think he's really thought about this to a really deep extent, but he's trying to pay lip service to the industries because all he's doing is making sure that he protects their profits. Because as soon as he leaves the FCC, mark my words, uh, he's probably going to take a really lucrative job with a pretty hefty hiring bonus at one of these lobbying firms that represent AT&T or Comcast, maybe CTIA or US Telecom, or maybe he just might work directly for the industry, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast. So all he's doing is he's singing the tunes he thinks they want to hear because this guy is a sellout. He's a shill. And he's sending a message to them that, hey, no matter what, we're going to fight to make sure that your profits are protected. And this is what he's signaling to them right here. This is the message that he's trying to convey. It's not necessarily that he's trying to tell us That public broadband is a threat it's that he's trying to tell them his future employers what he feels about this particular issue now if you're actually trying to make a compelling argument first of all extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence so the fact that he couldn't provide that well not only is it (laughs) not too surprising but it's laughable if i were in his shoes and i was trying to make some type of bullshit argument against public broadband here's what i would say i would frame it in this way not to give him advice but i'd say look if you end up making public broadband more common in municipalities across the country what's going to happen well, that's going to kill off jobs at Comcast because obviously they're not going to be able to compete with the prices offered at the local level. So that means there's going to be a loss of jobs. Now, in actuality, what would happen is it's going to lead to a loss in profits because these private companies like Comcast would have to compete with publicly owned municipal broadband. But that's something that he could say. So if you're going to make a claim, you've got to at least try to remain in the realm of plausibility and really sanity, but instead, he makes the dumbest argument he can possibly make. Oh, well, um, public broadband threatens the First Amendment because what we've been seeing with, you know, uh, areas like Chattanooga is they've been conducting anti-First Amendment mischief. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. Look, man, Mike O'Reilly, if you're watching this, I know the FCC really likes to watch my videos. You are a fraud. You're a shill, and we all know exactly what you're doing here. You're virtue signaling to the industry because you really hope that they hire you once you leave the FCC. And I'm sure that all of this shilling for them will pay off. I'm sure you're going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams once you get out of the FCC. But understand, you're doing what citizens do not want you to do. So so long as you're a bureaucrat yourself, you know, while you denounce bureaucrats and bemoan them as if they're these ominous figures who are out to make a profit, understand that we know what you're doing. You and Ajit Pai and the other shill at the FCC, Brendan Carr, you're empowering them to do that because you don't care about consumers. You're supposed to protect consumers. The FCC is an agency that is supposed to protect consumers, but instead... They are stripping away what little protections we had for consumers. Also, that way Comcast and AT&T and Verizon can make more profits. Unbelievable, but understand that we're still engaged with this issue. We're still paying attention. And no matter how much you fearmonger about public broadband, that doesn't mean we're going to stop pushing for it. And in fact, bad news for you, buddy. I talked to someone who is a member of my local city council, along with the county commissioner, and they were both very enthusiastic about the idea of public broadband so this is something that we will all be pushing for across the country and we wouldn't have even been talking about this had you not voted to repeal net neutrality but since you did that and since you've left us no other options well um we're gonna push for public broadband if you don't like this then thank yourself because it was your stupidity in repealing title ii that catalyzed this movement to begin with So we're seeing a lot of news lately related to the migrant caravan that Donald Trump has been fear mongering about. And these are immigrants coming from the country of Honduras. But one thing that's not often discussed when it comes to this issue is why they're coming here and our role in the 2009 coup in Honduras that made mass immigration likely. So TYT's Ken Klippenstein explains, it's not hard to see why Hondurans are fleeing their country. As Adam Isaacson, senior program associate at the Washington Office on Latin America, told The Guardian, after the 2009 coup, the government essentially stopped functioning in rural areas where organized crime took hold and cocaine shipments started arriving in larger numbers. Then, as institutions hollowed out and became corrupted, gang activity increased and the United States got a wave of migrants. By 2012, Honduras would have the highest murder rate of any country on the planet according to the un office of drugs and crime so there's a lot going on with regard to this issue and the united states did in fact play a role in overthrowing honduras leader manuel zelaya and here with me to discuss the united States' role is ken klippenstein of tyt the author of that article so ken thank you so much for joining me hey thanks for having me on yeah, so I wanted you to kind of explain the United States' role in the Honduran coup and how that directly led to this migrant crisis.
2: Well, what ended up happening in 2009 was they overthrew, as you mentioned, uh, Manuel Zelaya, a relatively progressive figure. He oversaw a 70% increase in the wage, which is significant in the country as you know, poor as Honduras. And in addition to that, he made enrollment in school free. He was also working on land reform at the time that he was Ousted and um, just in general if you look at um, UN and you know other figures you see a general increase across the board on kind of uh, socioeconomic indices um, And unfortunately when he was removed by the Honduran military in 2009 all that went out the window Poverty skyrocketed violence skyrocketed um, The state the institutions of the state essentially collapsed law enforcement um, became unable to you know do what it was doing And that's really when you see the genesis of the migrant crisis, Uh, you know, I think it's called a migrant crisis, but I think maybe it should be called a refugee crisis because a lot of these folks leaving are literally leaving just not to get killed. I mean, this was Honduras was the murder capital of the world not long ago and um, certainly for the hemisphere. So, um, yeah, I just wish some of this background got told when, uh, you know, the news talks about the situation with the caravan, because more than half of the caravan, the majority of them themselves are Hondurans. These are not Mexicans. These are not Costa Ricans. These are Hondurans.
0: Now, there were a lot of attempts by the United States to kind of instigate with the situation in 2009 with the coup. Can you talk a little bit about
2: our role? Sure. So um, when the coup first happened, Obama actually said that it was illegal and condemned it. But what ended up happening... Um, is over time he ended up reversing on that and um, recognizing the new government as legitimate, which was significant because the rest of the Latin American region um, did not, or much of the rest of the region did not believe it was legitimate. And, um, you know, if you can pressure them enough, um, Zelaya, the, you know, democratically elected leader may have been able to return. Now, the way you go about doing that um, with a country as powerful as ours, the United States, they have a great deal of influence, just diplomatically, uh, just completely aside from military. And so um, what happened at the time was Lanny Davis, uh, you might recognize that name, was uh, Bill Clinton's um, special counsel during the Monica Lewinsky scandal and a number of other scandals during his presidency, um, was actually working for one of the leaders of the coup government um, to essentially do PR, placing stories in uh, you know, pretty respected outlets like the Wall Street Journal, I think he got a, I can't remember uh, a lot of the outlets, but he had a great success in projecting this idea that the coup government was in fact legitimate, and uh, he actually had to register as a lobbyist of uh, the Honduran government at the time. Someone that uh, worked under him as a subcontractor, uh, vice president of, of a firm that that assisted him in a lot of his work around this time, um, his name is Omri Sarin, this was the national security advisor to Ted Cruz. Um and I don't know that was just striking to me uh, given Cruz's really harsh rhetoric on the you know issue of immigrants and uh, you know to my mind um, if he doesn't you know want a you know a migrant crisis you know maybe the people he hires he should ensure that they didn't have any role in it to begin with.
0: So when it comes to Omri Sarin, can you speak a little bit more about what his role was and just how close he is tied to Ted
2: Cruz? Well, unfortunately, the way the laws are around registering as a lobbyist of a foreign government, we can only see what they tell us, which they're not required to tell us a whole lot. But what we did see was that um, Lanny Davis hired uh, this firm as a subcontractor to help him with this kind of PR push to try to um, prop up the legitimacy and the you know international image of this coup government, which had no legitimacy uh, within Honduras and within the region generally. Um, and so, while he was doing that. Uh, he, he hired this other firm called um, Davis, I can't remember the name of the firm, but um, the vice president of that firm at the time was um, Ted Cruz's uh, national security advisor. And so that's really where you see at least one tie to the um, Republican Party. But the ties are general. I mean, a lot of the military officials in Honduras were trained, you know, at the U.S. School of the Americas. Um, this is just sort of one very vivid illustration of it. But, um, you know, the connections are many, I think.
0: Now, Ted Cruz is someone who often takes a really hardline stance against immigration. So if you're really going to take that position and you're against immigrants, then what would be your message to people who keep supporting these types of coups? I think it's a simple answer, but I'd like to hear it from you.
2: I think let them elect their own leaders. uh, And when they do, as we saw in the case of Honduras, certainly uh, you see that conditions improve and the country becomes more livable. Um, nobody wants to leave their home unless they, you know, absolutely are forced to. And so uh, I think the first thing Obama should have done is stuck to what he initially said. Uh, you know, the coup is illegal. Uh, we need the return of the democratically elected leader. And, you know, if he has gripes about it, um, there's, you know, legal ways that we can respect international law, bring those up through the proper forums, forms in which we have a great deal of power and influence, uh, say the United Nations. Um, those are the right ways to do it. The wrong way to do it is to support a regime that turns the country into, uh, you know, such a catastrophe that no one can live there anymore. And it's going to drive people out of it.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the caravan that is coming from Honduras? Because there's been a lot of fear mongering over this issue. And you stated the statistic that there's about 50% women and children. Can you talk a little bit more about why the fear mongering is just completely overblown?
2: Right. Well, so if these are gang gang members, as Trump has you know many times insinuated, um, they're not going to be coming into these official border facilities to try to register and receive political asylum. They're going to you know try to do it secretly, if if at all. And you know these folks are trying to just get legitimate you know visas so that they could come in um, legally. This isn't at all how <laughs> criminal syndicates would be handling something like this. And if you talk to folks, you know I have sources in the Department of Homeland Security and in ICE too. Um, who, you know, they'll tell you that the whole thing is just ridiculous. That's not not how any sort of criminal organization would uh, handle these kind of things. Right.
0: Now, I know that this is difficult to kind of estimate, but if you you had to guess how many of these, like what percentage do you think would be able to actually successfully um, obtain asylum here?
2: Very few. And that's another thing that's not discussed enough. Um, The vast majority of these people, I think, would be rejected, not because they aren't, um, you know, uh, legitimate asylum seekers or um, refugees but just because the US's standards for allowing someone in even just on a refugee um you know or visa basis is extraordinarily steep and difficult to satisfy so even if you're coming at this from the right this very few of these people are going to end up coming through even if you just let them you know come here but it would appear that Trump and his base doesn't even want them to be able to present their case which is just a You know, hold another level of uh, travesty, I think
0: it's essentially illegal as well, because they're they're at least legally allowed to show up to a legal port of entry and make the case for asylum. Correct.
2: Right. Exactly. And that's all they want. They're not saying, you know, let us jump in, sneak in or they're just saying, please consider a case, which is under international law, completely textbook. You know, you're allowed to do it.
0: I think that what you said about um, referring to them as refugees, that really is the more apt description for these people because they're fleeing violence that we created. And now individuals like Ted Cruz, who are going to take a really hard line stance against immigration, well, they're not acknowledging that the people around them helped create this crisis. So if we're going to continue intervening in foreign countries... I think the least we can do, and we should stop intervening to be clear, the least we can do is at least hear them out at the bare minimum. But I mean, we've seen the Republican Party shift so far to the right and become so extreme that that's even a controversial statement, whereas even leaders like Reagan before, he actually advocated for amnesty, contrary to popular belief. He didn't take this hardline xenophobic response as problematic as all of his other policies were. So, Ken, is there anything else that you think we should know about this before we go?
2: I think exactly what you pointed out is the is the main point. You know, we played a role, not all of it, but we played a significant role in the collapse of the Honduran state. Um, and the least we can do is try to, you know, compensate them uh, and, you know, letting them into the country is nothing like being able to continue to live where you grew up in the you know home that you have. But I think it's the least we could do to let them in.
0: OK, so we will leave it there for more. Of Ken Klippenstein's work. You can go to TYT Investigates. He's breaking a lot of news stories and he's doing a fantastic job. So uh, Ken, thank you so much for coming on and explaining this issue. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thank you. The clarity is very necessary in this day and age when nothing but misinformation is being espoused. So uh, I appreciate it. So recently, President Donald Trump released an ad that's so comically bad, that's so brazenly racist, that it's indistinguishable from a satirical ad you might find in The Onion or an ad that they make up in Saturday Night Live to make fun of Republicans for fear-mongering over immigrants so i'm gonna play you the ad and then afterwards we'll discuss the implications of the ad along with the response the ad received so take a look at this joke of an ad that donald trump released last friday
3: hey, gentlemen, the jury? Please step out of the hallway break up soon The
4: only
2: thing that I can regret is if I can still, too. I wish I could kill more of those motherfuckers. kill more cats
3: that, He says he wants to apply for pardon for the felony he committed. Uh, attempt of murder.
0: So obviously, the message is crystal clear. These immigrants, these brown immigrants that are coming here from Honduras, it's not like these are families trying to flee violence. In fact, they're coming here to commit crimes. A lot of those people are just as psycho as Luis Bracamontes, who Democrats let into the country. So a lot of these people, they're not coming here to make a better life for themselves. They're coming here to commit murder. And yes, those individuals headed from Honduras are just like this psychopath in this ad. Now, the reality, it just doesn't matter to Donald Trump because any reasonable person can obviously deduce that, yes, there is a lot of violence in Honduras, in large part due to the coup that we started in 2009, but nonetheless, there's violence, so they're coming here to flee violence and make a better life for themselves. But Donald Trump, he doesn't care about facts or reality. What he's trying to do is very clear. He's trying to gin up support among the base and trying to fearmonger in an attempt to galvanize support for the Republican Party ahead of the midterm elections. Now, the problem with the assumptions he made in this ad is that they're so preposterous that you can dismiss them on their face because obviously Democrats and anyone who's rational wouldn't want someone like this in the country who's a literal cop killer. Nobody is advocating that people like him should be let into the country. And furthermore, in trying to pin blame on Democrats for this, he ended up making a fool of him himself because, as The Hill reports, quote, the man at the center of President Trump's controversial new midterms ad who was convicted of the murder of two police officers was readmitted to the U.S. during President George W. Bush's tenure, not under Democrats, as the ad says. So what a colossal fucking failure. (laughs) In an attempt to scapegoat Democrats and blame them for this guy, he inadvertently revealed his own party's incompetence with regard to this issue. It was Democrats who let him in. No, actually, it was George W. Bush who let him in. But I mean, that ad itself, it isn't just factually incorrect. Trump isn't just wrong. He's not just revealing the Republican Party's incompetence or his own stupidity, but it's also racist. And look, it doesn't matter how blatantly racist Donald Trump is. It doesn't matter how insensitive a statement he makes is. When the left points out that Donald Trump said something racist, well, the obvious response is always going to be, Oh, well, Mike, see, it's easy for you to call everything racist because everything is racist to you. You're just the liberal cuck, SJW snowflake, NPC, orange man, bad fag. So (laughs) the reality of the situation is that... You don't have to take my word for it, but this ad was so racist that even Fox News decided to pull it. And if Fox News thinks something is too racist, then I think that's a pretty good gauge as to just how blatantly racist something is. Now, Fox's president of ad sales, Marianne Gambelli, said this about the ad in a statement. Quote, upon further review, Fox News pulled the ad yesterday and it will not appear on either Fox News or Fox Business Network. I wonder why. Hmm. Not only is it factually incorrect for starters, but it's also really fucking racist. If you're trying to generalize an entire group of people based on the actions of one person who's a criminal and a psychopath, that's racist. That's bigotry. Regardless, if you want to acknowledge that or not, most reasonable people would logically deduce that that ad is racist, it's fear-mongering, and for these networks to even run it to begin with, they should be ashamed of themselves now look it's not just fox because nbc news and facebook also pulled the ad as reuters reports and this was in response at least when it comes to nbc to them airing the ad during a sunday night football broadcast so now they have decided to pull the ad for obvious reasons because it's pretty fucking racist so look donald trump you can you can see his electoral strategy because he's wearing it on his sleeves. His goal is to make you be afraid, be very, very afraid because people from Honduras who are fleeing the violence that our country caused, they're just like that criminal in this ad and you should be afraid of them. I mean, it's just, it's laughable. And if Donald Trump was in fact playing three-dimensional chess, as a lot of his supporters like to suggest, then he would at least try to code his racist words a little better, right? He would at least try to be more subtle in the implication that these immigrants are criminals. But instead, he just overtly described those immigrants coming from Honduras as comparable to a cop killer, a convicted cop killer who's on death row. I mean, I mean... As appalling as the ad is, he's at least helping the left, right? Because this is so comical, so brazen. It's so obvious that what he's trying to do is fearmonger, that he's actually making our case for us because he's showing that he doesn't have an argument. Republicans don't have an argument. They don't stand for anything. What policies are they proposing this midterm? Are they proposing a fix to the Affordable Care Act, which they lambast often? Because it certainly needs to be fixed. Are they proposing to end the wars? No, if anything, Donald Trump expanded the military-industrial complex and uh, U.S. militarism. So, Republicans don't have an argument. So, the only way they can win is if they galvanize their base to come out and vote, and the number one strategy they use for doing that is fear-mongering. This time, it is immigrants, but a couple years ago, it was ISIS, so they want you to vote based on fear because they don't have any policies that could actually benefit your life. So they have to make you feel afraid. But in actuality, you don't have to be afraid. The world isn't that scary of a of a place. And sometimes issues are relatively black and white. These people are coming here because they want to flee violence, not cause violence in the United States. But unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to convince a lot of Donald Trump supporters who were already sold on this idea that all immigrants are criminals and they shouldn't be allowed to enter the country or even make their case for asylum. Despite a blatant attempt to suppress the vote, Republican gubernatorial candidate Brian Kemp still might not be able to win because when you look at public polling data, you'll find that his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams, is statistically tied with him. So that state is a toss-up and as a result brian kemp is getting desperate now he's already pulled out all the stops in order to make sure that he disenfranchises black voters who would otherwise vote for Stacey abrams but now he is accusing the democratic party in the state of georgia of committing fraud in a last-ditch effort to maybe pull off a win now as richard l Hayson of slate reports Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who is running for governor while simultaneously in charge of the state's elections, has accused the Democratic Party, without evidence, of hacking into the state's voter database. He plastered a headline about it on the Secretary of State's website, which thousands of voters use to get information about voting on Election Day. It's just the latest in a series of partisan moves by Kemp, who has held up more than 50,000 voter registrations for inconsistent as small as a missing hyphen, fought rules to give voters a chance to prove their identities when their absentee ballot applications are rejected for a lack of a signature match, and been aggressive in prosecuting those who have done nothing more than try to help those in need of assistance in casting ballots. But the latest appalling move by Kemp to publicly accuse the Democrats of hacking without evidence is even worse than that. Kemp has been one of the few state election officials to refuse help from the Federal government of Homeland Security to deter foreign and domestic hacking of voter registration databases. After computer scientists demonstrated the insecurity of the state's voting system, he was sued for having perhaps the most vulnerable election system in the country. His office has been plausibly accused of destroying evidence which would have helped to prove the vulnerabilities of the state election system. If anyone is to blame for vulnerabilities with the voting system, it is Kemp. And now he's trying to turn those vulnerabilities into crass political advantage by blaming Democrats without evidence for the state's failings. The press release entitled After failed hacking attempt, Secretary of State launches investigation into Georgia Democratic Party provides no details. It quotes a spokesperson saying, quote, while we cannot comment on the specifics of an ongoing investigation, I can confirm that the Democratic Party of Georgia is under investigation for possible cyber crimes. So he has absolutely no shame. And at this point, I feel like This is comical. (laughs) There was an Onion article that really described the situation in Georgia, I think, pretty aptly in saying that Brian Kemp was feeling enthusiastic about the fact that he suppressed a lot of votes or something along those lines. I'll, I'll go ahead and put that on the screen so you can see it. But, I mean... He is making this huge allegation and accusation against the Democratic Party in Georgia and trying to implicate his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams, but he's just throwing up that flashy headline and he's not really willing to give you any details, probably because he doesn't have any details. And furthermore, he rejected help from the Department of Homeland Security in increasing cybersecurity. Now, regardless as to how vulnerable you feel our elections are, if you get the offer to have your cybersecurity in your state increased and protect the votes and protect voter databases, you have absolutely no incentive to reject that. But Brian Kemp decided to do that unilaterally. So, and now after rejecting, the Department of Homeland Security's help in increasing their state cybersecurity, he's blaming Democrats for a cyber attack. I mean, this guy has absolutely no shame. Now, of course, that leads to the question as to why he'd launched this investigation, if seemingly he has no reason or no evidence to prove that Democrats are in fact guilty of a cyber attack. I mean, clearly, there's value for him in doing this two days before the election, but he still has to have at least some basis for creating this investigation there has to be something even if it's a stretch and as cnn's katie harding explains Well, it was in fact a stretch because this is what he is supposedly basing this investigation off of.
2: It was a series of email communications
0: they received that looked to them like two Democratic operatives discussing a plan to try to uh, attack vulnerabilities within the state's voter registration database and it also included the computer programming script to do so. But as it turns out, there was an email that preceded those that the Secretary of State's office didn't initially get and that was an email from a concerned citizen who reached out to the state's voter protection hotline that is run by the Democratic Party to make them aware of these vulnerabilities that he sort of stumbled upon was when he was checking out the status of his own voter registration information. So in short As we suspected, this is a complete non-issue, and he's using this investigation as a launching point for a new attack on his opponent, Stacey Abrams. He's trying to imply and get the people of Georgia to think, well, you know, it's not me who's actually been suppressing the vote here and who's the real fraud. It's my opponent. Stacey Abrams. So, in effect, this is the old argument we all used in elementary school. I know you are, but what am I? Because that's what we're seeing here. He's trying to change the narrative from him not being the fraud, and Democrats are actually the fraud in this state. They're the ones committing a cyber attack, when in actuality, he has no evidence for this. So, this is a last-ditch effort to maybe pull out a victory after bungling what should be theoretically an easy race for someone like Brian Kemp to beat. I mean, Georgia is a red state, so a Republican should be able to win, no problem. But even after he's tried to suppress the vote, well, polls are still showing that this race is a toss-up. Stacey Abrams could very well pull this off. So this is nothing more than a political witch hunt. And this is exactly the sentiment that Stacey Abrams echoed in an interview on CNN recently.
2: It's a witch hunt that was created by someone who is abusing his power. Friday, Brian Kemp was notified that there was yet another flaw in the election security system twice before he has accidentally released the information of six million Georgians. This was about to happen again. Instead of owning up to it, taking responsibility and seeking a way to fix the flaw, he instead decided to blame Democrats because he does that.
0: So there you have it. Brian Kemp is getting increasingly desperate. So all you can do if you live in the state of Georgia is defeat this fraud, show up to the polls, bring your friends with you, vote against this fraud who has done everything in his power to disenfranchise voters. And regardless of the outcome of the election, win or lose, there should be an investigation into Brian Kemp for what he did here because he has blatantly tried to suppress the vote. And the end result of that is that he disenfranchised thousands of African-American voters. And not just African-Americans. I mean, he he disenfranchised whites as well. But I mean, the target has been black voters, individuals in that state who are overwhelmingly likely to come out and support Stacey Abrams. So hopefully Stacey Abrams can pull this out because a fraud like Brian Kemp does not deserve to be in power and shouldn't be in power because clearly he's not looking out for the people of Georgia. He's looking out for his own political career. Well, it is finally here. Today is the day that millions of Americans across the country will cast their vote, and my hope for this midterm is that Democrats actually can take back one chamber of Congress. Now, it's looking likely that they will be able to win back the House, but I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic and just let you all know to close this video immediately and go vote if you haven't already done so. But I did want to tell you guys about some races that I think we should all be watching because these are very important and fascinating races. And later on, I'll come back with the full results of the election. And I'm watching quite a bit of races. So first and foremost, at the governor level, there's obviously the all too important race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. She has put up with an abundance of voter suppression tactics And regardless, she's still polling really well for a Democrat in a deep red state such as Georgia, and she's doing exactly what she needs to do. I've said repeatedly on this program that every single election for a Democrat is a get out the vote campaign, and she's done that. So she deserves to win, and Brian Kemp deserves to lose more than anything another race to watch is a race happening in my home state of Oregon. So, we have a governor, Kate Brown, who isn't super popular, but I voted for her because she's done a couple of things to prove her worth, in my opinion. She signed net neutrality into law, and really, that in and of itself is important, but she's also stood up against the Justice Department to defend our legal recreational marijuana laws. So, I support her. But, What's interesting is we see something in this race that you almost never see. You see a Republican running as Democrat light, trying to convince us that he's liberal, trying to convince us that he supports women's reproductive rights. And we'll see if something like this can actually lead him to victory in the state of Oregon. I mean, they're actually polling relatively close. Kate Brown is ahead, but she's just outside the margin of error. So this is kind of a nail-biter for the state of Oregon. But um, needless to say, I'm curious to know... If the Democrat light strategy will work, is that going to demoralize the base, or will Republicans get out and support this individual Newt Weller I don't know how to pronounce his name Buller Weller. I'm not sure it doesn't matter because hopefully I don't have to hear from him again, but um, we'll see if that's enough because we know that Republican light is often a disastrous strategy for Democrats, so let's see if it works out here. Another race to look out for. Is the race in Florida between Andrew Gillum and Trumpian politician Ron DeSantis? Hopefully, Andrew Gillum can pull out a victory because we have enough Trumpian politicians in Congress. We don't need one to be a governor in Florida. Additionally, we have Ben Jealous facing off against Larry Hogan in the state of Maryland. Ben Jealous is a firebrand progressive, and I am absolutely rooting for him. We also have Christine Hulquist, facing off against Phil Scott in the state of Vermont. If Christine wins, she will make history as the first transgender governor. But also, she's progressive to boot. Now, additionally, there's a number of Senate races to watch. Bernie Sanders is up for re-election. I'm not really going to be following that too closely because I think he's going to do okay. Um, But, of course, the race everyone's talking about is the race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is up. He's polling outside the margin of error, but early voting numbers shows that Beto's not out of it just yet. So, for the love of God, people, I am so sick of talking about Ted Cruz. I don't like looking at his smug, tonsil stone-eating face. Please, for the love of God, vote Ted Cruz out of office. I'm not the biggest Beto O'Rourke supporter in the world. I don't think he's the best candidate ever. He's kind of more like an Elizabeth Warren or a Sherrod Brown. But for the love of god he's not ted cruz and he's fairly progressive he's someone who has given us the signal that he would co-sponsor bernie sanders medicare for all bill if he were to be elected so people please i mean it's it's ted cruz versus beto o'rourke if i had the opportunity to vote for beto i absolutely would enthusiastically cast my vote for beto and not that smarmy smug zodiac killer ted cruz Other races to look out for are a bunch of Republican-like Democrats who are up for re-election in the Senate. We have Claire McCaskill potentially bungling this race in Missouri against the Republican Josh Hawley. We have Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, who's probably going to lose because, I mean, let's face it, she's governed as a Republican, and as a result, her base just isn't excited. We have Joe Donnelly in Indiana. Polling, essentially, within the margin of error, we have Jackie Rosen in the state of Nevada, Joe Manchin going up against Patrick Morrissey in West Virginia, probably going to pull it off, but I'm not sure. We have conservative Democrat Phil Bredesen going up against... The Spawn of Satan, Marsha Blackburn. So really, it's lose-lose for voters, but hopefully Bredesen can pull this off because Marsha Blackburn obviously is worse than Phil Bredesen. And then we have a really interesting race to watch in the state of California. We have Kevin DeLeon going up against Dianne Feinstein, and she's polling ahead of him. But if we can get Dianne Feinstein out and Kevin DeLeon in— Even if he's not perfect, even if he takes corporate PAC money, progressives should be rooting for him, one, because he's not Dianne Feinstein, and two, because he actually does support Medicare for All. He states that he would co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So I would be ecstatic if he won. And for the love of God, California is a deep blue state. Why do you keep voting for Dianne Feinstein? She's someone who is a conservative Democrat. She refuses to support Medicare for All. She only recently started to signal support for recreational marijuana because she had a progressive challenger in Alison Hartson and Kevin DeLeon and David Hildebrand. But I mean, this would be phenomenal for the progressive movement as a whole if we can get her out. The media would count this as a win for us. And I think that's going to be important and give us some momentum going into 2020. When it comes to the House, obviously, we're all making sure that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez secures her victory. Now, additionally, there's another really important race taking place in the 9th Congressional District of Washington, with Sarah Smith going up against Corporate Democrat and Warhawk Adam Smith. No relation. She's been on my program multiple times, and I wholeheartedly endorse her. She's just as progressive as i Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and if she were to win, this would be a gigantic victory for progressives. We also have Rashida Tlaib in Michigan's 13th congressional district, one to watch. We have Ilhan Omar going up in Minnesota, the 5th congressional district to be exact. Amar Kampanajar going up against corporate indicted Republican Duncan Hunter in California's 50th congressional district. We have Green Party candidate Kenneth Mejia taking on corporate Democrat Jimmy Gomez in California's 34th congressional district. And in Florida's 23rd district, we have Tim Canova, an independent, up against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, corporate Democrat extraordinaire, in a dead heat. He can pull this off. So definitely vote for him. In the state of Kansas, their fourth congressional district, we have James Thompson going up against Ron Estes. In Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, we have Randy Bryce going up against Brian Steele, so hopefully Iron Stash can pull out a victory. In the 4th Congressional District of Nevada, we have Corporate Democrat Stephen Horsford going up against Crescent Hardy, a Republican. Now, this was the race, if you all recall, that Amy Valela ran in, and this district is kind of a purple district, it's a toss-up, and... Stephen Horsford is a terrible candidate. So we'll see if we pull if if he can pull this off. And if not, then um I think we're all going to be saying I told you so in that Amy Vallela should have been the established or should have been the the candidate, but the establishment has shunned her completely. So we'll see how that goes. Additionally, we have Kara Eastman facing off against Don Bacon in Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. We have Jess King in Pennsylvania's 11th Congressional District. We have Keith Ellison for Attorney General in Minnesota. Not necessarily sure if that's going to be a victory for progressives or not because there are some domestic abuse allegations that are absolutely not going away. Now, Keith Ellison did the right thing here in asking the FBI to investigate, but this is certainly a cloud that's hanging over his head. So, win or lose, you know, this is a tricky situation here. So, um, we'll see how that goes. Additionally, I want to point out state race in New York's 53rd district, we have Julia Salazar. So there's plenty of races to watch out for. I will give you updates to all of these later, but these are the ones that I'm watching. Please comment down below if there's any race that's particularly important to you. I know I didn't cover all of them, but I will be doing everything I can to at least give you the results of the most high-profile races. And then tomorrow, we'll come back with my post-election analysis I'll go over some ballot initiatives that are progressive that won. And also, I'm going to tell you what we should do next in the event Democrats are actually able to successfully take back the House. So stay tuned. Well, the election results are officially in and democrats have taken back the house of representatives and this is absolutely fantastic news because this means that we now have a check on the gop and donald trump's tyranny and we all know that they were eyeing cuts to medicaid medicare and social security and now we have one opposition party in full control To say no, granted, Democrats actually do hold strong. So, I'm going to tell you what we should do going forward. Tomorrow, I'll have a video up about Barbara Lee and why I think we should officially begin our campaign to make her House Speaker. But one of the first stories that emerged after we got news that Democrats retook the House was that they were planning to petition to have Donald Trump's tax returns released. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) Start proposing policies, Medicare for all. Let's get net neutrality solidified using the authority that Congress has under the Congressional Review Act, if it's not too late. Put up a bill to legalize... Recreational marijuana. You're not going to get these passed, but you can at least make your agenda clear to the American people. So clearly, now that we retook the House and we have some sort of control over Congress, and it's not just all Republicans in control of every single branch of government, we need to make sure that there's a leadership change within the Democratic Party. And that person is Barbara Lee. But look, I want to get to some of these results. Um, by and large, I would say that it was a good night if you're a liberal but overall the results were mixed. So when it comes to the gubernatorial elections, we'll talk about Georgia first of all. Now, at the time I'm recording this at 10:30 PST, it is the case that the race has not been called, although Stacey Abrams is 3 points behind with 96% of precincts reporting. So I hope that she's able to pull off a victory here, but if she's not, if she loses, then she should refuse to concede and demand that there's an investigation into Brian Kemp. And there's also a funny story that that came out showing that he may have inadvertently suppressed his own vote. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, hopefully, we will see what happens there, but we've got some really devastating blows when it comes to Governor races. So, in the state of Maryland... Ben Jealous, a firebrand progressive, unfortunately, lost. And it doesn't help that Democrats in that state were rooting against him. Additionally, when it comes to Florida, even if Andrew Gillum was up above Ron DeSantis in the polls, he lost by one percentage point. And this is just a devastating blow. And there's a lot of theories as to why this happened. Me personally, I think it didn't help that he chose to align with a really unpopular candidate like Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and kind of made that right word pivot. Now, I don't know if that's what cost him the election, but I do know that this was a really devastating defeat here. Additionally, Christine Holquist of Vermont lost. Drew Edmondson lost in Oklahoma. But that's about the extent of the loses when it comes to gubernatorial races. We did have some wins, And we had some pretty surprising wins. So in the state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer actually pulled off a victory. Now, I was rooting for Abdul El-Sayed during the primaries, but the fact that under Republican control, Flint lost clean drinking water because privatization and profits were more important to Governor Rick Snyder. Now it's nice to see a Democrat retake control of that state. Additionally, in Kansas, Laura Kelly actually defeated vote suppressor Chris Kobach, which is just a huge victory. In the state of California, no surprise, Gavin Newsom won. He's not necessarily a firebrand progressive, but I would say that he is better than Jerry Brown. In the state of Oregon, it seems like being democrat light didn't help the Republican because Kate Brown... Quickly secured victory early in the night as soon as basically the votes came in, it seemed clear that she was gonna win and when it comes to the Senate, this is where things take a really bad turn um so first of all, Ted Cruz was reelected, and Beto O'Rourke lost an absolute gut punch because now we all have to deal with Ted Cruz's smug, tonsil-stone-eating, milf-porn-loving face for another six years at a minimum. So, that was one of the most highest-profile races of this election cycle, and it didn't go in our direction, but at the same time, I do want to give Beto O'Rourke credit for it even being as close as it was, because I believe Ted Cruz won by about three percentage points which is fairly close for a deep red state like Texas. So, I mean, credit where it's due to Beto O'Rourke. I wasn't incredibly enthusiastic about him. I was more excited about Ted Cruz losing. But for the most part, you've got to head it to him. He ran a fantastic campaign. And um, unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. And now we have to get to some less surprising results. And the first is that progressives like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders handily won their re-election campaigns, really not surprised at all. However, we had a lot of corporate Democrats who pivoted to the right, who became Republican light, lose their races. Claire McCaskill, unsurprisingly lost to Republican Josh Hawley. Heidi Heitkamp, unsurprisingly lost to Republican Kevin Kramer. Joe Donnelly of Indiana, after attacking his own party and attacking progressives, lost to a Republican, Mike Braun. Phil Bredesen, after saying that he would have voted for Kavanaugh, lost to Marsha Blackburn. Bill Nelson, lost to Rick Scott of all people in Florida. But the one republican light Democrat that was able to hold on to their seat is actually Joe Manchin, the worst of the worst. So most of these centrist democrats these conservative democrats who vote with trump they were wiped out joe manchin is the only one that survived
3: congratulations you played yourself
0: they deserve to lose but at the same time you know i'm conflicted because these republicans who beat them didn't deserve to win because instead of having someone that votes with trump uh, 50 to 60 to 80% of the time. Now we have someone who's going to vote with Trump 100% of the time. And what I'm worried about is in the events another Supreme Court vacancy uh emerges, now it's almost a sure bet that Donald Trump is going to get a third Supreme Court nominee through, which is terrifying. Now, there's still some hope left because Jackie Rosen, who is pretty much a corporate Democrat, is going up against Dean Heller in the state of Nevada. And at this point in time, I don't have the results for you, but we'll see how that goes. Now, also, we got some really, uh, I guess you could say, interesting news. Mitt Romney is uh, going to the Senate. He's now a U.S. senator. why why do these dinosaurs who lost keep running for congress and why do we keep electing them people mitt romney mitt you've got to join hillary clinton you've got to get out in the woods and understand that americans don't like you but apparently you know he he knew that the people of utah liked him and he won so i guess what do i know right I guess we like these dinosaur politicians. Um, Speaking of dinosaur politicians, can you guess who else won? Dianne Feinstein. She beat Kevin DeLeon, and the margin wasn't as huge as we were all expecting because Kevin DeLeon, he didn't do too bad. But the problem is, I think that in the event we had someone like Alison Hartson or David Hildebrand... They would have beaten, or had. I don't know if they would have beaten, I don't want to say that authoritatively, but I will say that they would have had a better shot and possibly a higher margin than Kevin DeLeon, because that would have given them enough time to get their uh, name out there and whatnot. But disappointing to see that um, Californians elected a conservative Democrat. Now, getting to the House races, this is where it improves for us quite a bit, because we have a lot of progressives that ended up winning. So I'm going to get to all the losses first. So, that way we can end on a positive note. So, when it comes to Sarah Smith of Washington's 9th Congressional District, unfortunately, she was defeated by corporate Democrat warmonger Adam Smith. In California's 50th Congressional District, Amar Campanajar lost to corrupt Republican Duncan Hunter, who... Literally is facing dozens of indictments. So I don't even know if he's going to be able to f- serve out his full term, but I mean, he was able to win. Additionally, in the 34th congressional district, Kenneth Mejia lost to corporate Democrat Jimmy Gomez. And in Florida's 23rd congressional district, Tim Canova lost to corporate Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And in Kansas's 4th congressional district, James Thompson. Lost to Ron Estes in West Virginia's 3rd congressional district. Richard Ojeda lost to Carol Miller, even if he ran a fantastic campaign and closed a gigantic gap. Now, additionally, Adrian Bell in Texas's 14th congressional district lost. Randy Bryce, also known as Iron Stash, lost in Wisconsin's 1st congressional district. Kara Eastman lost to Don Bacon in Nebraska's 2nd congressional district. Additionally, Jess King, unfortunately, lost in Pennsylvania's 11th congressional district. Rodolfo Barajan lost to a Democrat in California's 40th congressional district that was a Green Party candidate. We also have a loss that I want to talk about that I'm excited for. Dave Bratt, who beat out Eric Cantor, who kind of rode into Congress on this Tea Party wave, lost. He was defeated, and that was really, really exciting because he positioned himself as this anti-establishment conservative when in actuality, he was nothing more than a Coke sellout. So I'm glad that he lost. Now, let's get to some victories here because there were a lot, and if you're a progressive, You have a reason to be very excited because we had quite a bit of victories. Unsurprisingly, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez officially becomes Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, winning New York's 14th Congressional District by a very large margin. Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar win Michigan's 13th Congressional District and Minnesota's 5th Congressional District, respectively, and they both make history as the first Muslim women ever elected to Congress. Additionally, Sharice Davids of Kansas's 3rd Congressional District and Deb Holland of New Mexico's 1st Congressional District, well, they also made history becoming the first Native American women ever to be elected to Congress, surprisingly. Now, Cherise is more of a corporate Democrat, from my understanding, but Deb Holland is actually a very strong progressive. She supports Medicare for All, so this was a huge victory for us. Now, additionally, Ayanna Presley won her election. We had an unexpected victory in New York's 11th congressional district. And when it comes to incumbents and their re-election campaigns, Raul Grijalva, Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard, Jamie Raskin, Pramila Jayapal, Earl Blumenauer, and Suzanne Bonamici all won their re-election campaigns. So this was a very solid night for progressives. And I think the most important win, for those of you concerned about Medicare for All, was Rashida Tlaib, because she is taking over the seat of John Conyers, who was the co-sponsor of H.R. 676, and yes, she supports Medicare for All. So, this is a solid night for progressives, and there's a lot of Justice Democrats who are elected. So, this is absolutely a pretty good showing um, for the first year of Justice Democrats. Uh, I- I'm honestly impressed. Two years after the organization was created, actually less than two years after it was created, they've got several members of Congress. Phenomenal news, great showing from them. Now, additionally, I want to get to some other races. So, Julia Salazar was running for state senate in New York and she won. Huge progressive, she's a DSA member. Gigantic victory. Additionally, Keith Ellison was elected as Minnesota's attorney general. Now, again, as I've stated earlier, there are domestic abuse allegations against him by two women now, two of his ex-girlfriends, and those aren't going away anytime soon. He has done the right thing, though, and asked the FBI to investigate these accusations. But, you know, it is what it is. So, we're going to have to see how that goes. Now, some surprisingly good news that I don't think anyone was paying attention to was Kim Davis. Do you remember her? She was the bigoted homophobe who actually went to jail for refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Well, guess what? She was just defeated. So by and large, this was a fairly good night for the left and a pretty great night for progressives as well. We won some, we lost some, so All in all, pretty solid night for the left. So as you all know, Republicans lost control of the House on Tuesday night. And even if it wasn't a complete blowout, I mean, that's still a defeat and it doesn't bode well for Donald Trump and the Republican Party's agenda. So he obviously probably wasn't too happy about this. And the day after the election, he was visibly irritable and essentially has been going on a rampage ever since Republicans lost control of the House. And there's a number of things that he's been doing. And the first thing is when he was at a press conference, he was just acting more petulant, more aggressive that I think he has for a really long time. I haven't seen him this combative uh, in months. And you can tell that the loss probably got under his skin. So pay attention to this video. And you're going to see an exchange he had with CNN's Jim Acosta. And it was just... Cringeworthy. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. I wanted to
1: challenge you on, on one of the statements that you made in the tail end of the campaign uh, in, in the midterms. That here, this,
3: here we go. That,
1: well, if let's you don't go, mind, Mr. President, that this caravan was an invasion. as you know, I, Ms. I President, consider it to be an invasion. As you know, Mr. President, the caravan was not an invasion. It's, a, it's a, a group of migrants moving up from Central America towards the border with the U.S. Thank you for telling and me that and I, I, why, why did you Why did you characterize it as such? Uh, because I
3: consider it an invasion. You and I have a difference of opinion. But do
1: you think that you demonized immigrants in not this election no, not to at try all. I to want
3: keep them? I want them to come into the country, but they have to come in legally. You know, they have to come in Jim, through a process. I want it to be a process, and I want people to come in, and we need right. the people. You your know? campaign. Wait, your campaign. Wait. wait. You know why we need the people, don't you? Because we have hundreds of companies moving in. We need the people. Right.
1: But your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so on. Well, that's true. It pour, it, but they it, weren't it, actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't
3: actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Right. These, were, these were people, this was an actual, you know, it happened a few days ago. And, uh,
1: They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of you miles away. That, that's not an invasion. Should, honestly,
3: uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings would well, be ask, much better. If I, if I okay, may ask one other question,
1: Mr. President, if I may, if I may if ask one go other go question, ahead. are you worried? To, that's enough. That's I mean, enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other question. If I may ask on the Russia investigation, are you concerned that? That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may have Russian investigation
3: because it's a hoax. Are you, that's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President,
1: are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation?
3: Yeah. Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't in, treat people that way. Go ahead.
2: In, in, go in, ahead, Jim, Peter. Go in, ahead. In, in Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts well, his Well, I'm butt not like a big fan of, of
3: yours either, so. I yeah, understand. To be honest. So, right. let me, so let me ask you a question if I can. You repeatedly you, you said. Are, you aren't the best.
1: Mr. President, you repeatedly. Over
3: the course okay, of. Okay, just sit down, please. Well, when you, when you report fake news. No. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. That was certainly something.
0: I mean, I don't even, I don't really know what to say about that. Donald Trump, he doesn't act presidential and nobody is really surprised by that. But there was a moment during that exchange he had there where he left the podium and it looked as if he was going to confront Jim Acosta to his face. But then once the mic was taken away from Jim Acosta, he... Went back to the podium. I mean, what were you going to do? Your president, are you really going to get up in Jim Acosta's face? I mean, I don't know that he was, in fact, going to do that, so I can only speculate. But I mean, if you see how aggressive he was acting and he left the podium, was presumably headed towards Jim Acosta, I mean, what were you going to do? Were you going to get in his face and tell him to take this outside? I mean, this is the president of the United States and this is behavior that is absolutely just appalling to me now look i i'm not one to tone police donald trump or talk about how i care so much about decorum at the end of the day i don't give a shit about that because the policy substance is what matters but at the same time just from a human level to see this play out i mean holy shit it looked as if he was going to confront jim acosta face to face wow. Now, that wasn't the only instance where he was kind of going toe-to-toe with reporters, and he's usually aggressive with reporters, but certainly more so this time than ever. And here's an example of some other um, exchanges he had that were just really
3: painful to watch. Peter, what are you trying to be him? Sit down, Peter. You just have to sit down, please. Sit down. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. I'll give you voter suppression. Take a look at the CNN polls, how inaccurate they were. That's called voter suppression. Very hostile. Uh, it's such a hostile media. It's so sad. You ask me about... No, you rudely interrupted him. You rudely interrupted him.
0: You called yourself a nationalist. Some people saw that as emboldening white nationalists.
2: Now people are also saying that the president... I don't know why you said that. The that. Pres-
3: such a racist question. There are
2: some people that say that no. now the Republican Party is seen as supporting white nationalists because oh, I don't of your believe rhetoric. I don't believe what do you that. make of that? I don't
3: believe it. I just, well, I don't know. Why do I have my highest poll numbers ever with African-Americans? Why do I have among the highest poll numbers with African-Americans? I mean, why do I have my highest poll numbers? That's such a racist question. Honestly, I mean, I know you have it written down and you're going to tell me. Let me tell you, that's a racist question.
0: Yeah. I mean, in response to the reporter asking the question, you know, if him calling himself a nationalist was kind of a nod to white nationalists, uh, he essentially said, no, you. <laughs> that was his response. I'm not racist. You're racist. So, I mean, understandably, he's having a really bad day, and he's wearing it on his sleeve. You can see that he is visibly irritable. He doesn't like the fact that, you know, the press is trying to challenge him. And look, as human beings, we we all have shitty days where we're just not in the mood. But, I mean, to go at the press like that is really something. Wow. Now, additionally, that wasn't the only part of Donald Trump's post-election rampage, because, as you all know, he fired Jeff Sessions. Now you're going to look at certain headlines and it's going to say that Jeff Sessions resigned, but I want to get to Jeff Sessions' letter that he submitted to the president. It says, quote, Dear Mr. President, at your request, I am submitting my resignation. So make no mistake about it. If you are submitting your resignation at the request of the president." you're being pushed out. He's essentially being fired. I mean, if you're a boss and you really, really, really want to fire one of your employees, but you want to make sure that you don't have to pay them severance, what do you do? You get them to quit. And that's essentially what Donald Trump did here just on a a national presidential level. Now, this is... <laughs> this has a lot of people torn, right? Because on one hand... We should all theoretically be ecstatic because Jeff Sessions is someone who is perhaps the worst attorney general we've seen in a really long time. He's definitely the worst in my lifetime. But at the same time, we have to be mindful of the fact that Donald Trump didn't fire Jeff Sessions because he doesn't like the performance of Jeff Sessions with regard to what he's doing as attorney general, because he's thrilled with the policies that uh, Jeff Sessions has been implementing and the direction that he's taken the Justice Department in, you know, towards a more draconian approach to, you know, the law. But with that being said, we all know that Donald Trump wanted Sessions gone because he's trying to shield himself and potentially undermine the Mueller investigation in the event Mueller finds that Trump has illegal business dealings and wants to indict Trump for some reason. So this is basically a way to cover his ass. I think that's pretty apparent to anyone who is even just the most casual observer of politics. He's obviously trying to cover his ass. It started back when... Jeff Sessions recused himself from, you know, the uh Russia investigation and the Mueller investigation and whatnot. And Trump got someone on there, Jeff Sessions who he thought would be loyal. And look, Jeff Sessions has been loyal to Trump. He was one of the earliest supporters of Donald Trump within the Republican Party. And when it comes to this issue though, something that may legally impact Donald Trump in a negative way, Jeff Sessions wasn't there for Donald Trump, and that's why he had to go on Trump's view. So look, what we're seeing is the rampage of Donald Trump the day after he lost an election, and this is only the start, I think that this kind of sends us the signal that we are going to see a more petulant, more tyrannical version of Donald Trump because he will grow increasingly irritable, If Democrats using the authority that they now have, controlling the House, you know, to subpoena documents and do what they say they're planning to do and drown him in investigations. I mean, if they actually do that, if he can't get anything from his policy agenda through, he's going to get absolutely a lot more unbearable to deal with and insufferable to listen to. He's going to act even more bratty than he's already been acting. And look, to be fair, I hope that Democrats do stifle donald trump's agenda and you know drown him with all of these different investigations and whatnot and quite frankly i hope that they obstruct am i confident that democrats will effectively combat donald trump's policy agenda uh no i'm not because what we've seen thus far it's not too encouraging right but Here's what they should be doing. They should be also simultaneously putting forward a really strong agenda to contrast with what the Republicans have been doing. But getting back to Donald Trump, if this is what we're seeing just one day after he lost some power, then we're going to be in for a long time. Two years. Because it's going to get a lot worse. And look, in some ways, he should feel relieved. And he's kind of expressed this and alluded to this on Twitter. He should feel relieved because I don't feel like this election was the repudiation of Donald Trump that we were all hoping for on the left. I mean, certainly you can make the case for or against that. But I mean, it wasn't the blowout, right? It wasn't a blue tsunami, which we were all hoping. So Donald Trump, he, you know, he he has some reasons to be... A little bit thankful but at the same time the fact that he lost the house and republicans lost control of the house it's just not going to bode well for his agenda and certainly you know with democrats being able to subpoena republicans and documents it it doesn't look too good for him and if we're seeing him react this way just one day after the election you know i'll say it again (laughs) this is going to get pretty damn interesting um, over the next couple of years, because he's going to be really, really tyrannical and downright insufferable if he doesn't in fact get everything that he wants, so um yeah, we have that to look forward to after Democrats won back the House of Representatives on Tuesday night, Nancy Pelosi made her victory speech, and rather than outlining a clear progressive agenda going into the twenty nineteen and twenty twenty congressional session she already kind of threw up the white flag and she made the case for bipartisanship
4: today is more than about democrats and republicans it's about restoring the constitution's checks and balances to the trump administration It's about stopping the GOP and Mitch McConnell's assaults on Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, and the health care of 130 million Americans living with pre-existing medical conditions. Let's hear it more for pre-existing medical conditions. In stark contrast to the GOP Congress, the Democratic Congress will be led with transparency and openness so that the public can see what's happening and how it affects them and that they can weigh in with the members of Congress and with the President of the United States. We will have accountability and we will strive for bipartisanship. With fairness on all sides, we will have a responsibility to find our common ground where we can, stand our ground where we can't, but we must try. We have a market, a bipartisan marketplace of ideas that makes our democracy strong. A Democratic Congress will work for solutions that bring us together.
0: So, look, I'll try to be charitable here and say that that entire clip wasn't awful. I'm a little bit relieved to hear her say we're going to try to stop the Republican Party's attack on, you know, earned benefit programs, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, That makes me feel a little bit better, I guess, if she actually holds strong. Because, look, dreamers can tell you that the last time Democrats claimed they would hold strong, they didn't. They caved really soon. So, I mean, I'm glad that she at least acknowledges the importance of that. But here's where this all took a turn for the worse, where she fell off a cliff in her speech. She said, quote, we will strive for bipartisanship. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but she kind of did a little pause there after she said that, and I think she was expecting the crowd to cheer, but there was about one person that seemed to be clapping there.
4: And we will strive for bipartisanship, with fairness on all sides.
0: Yeah, and after she said that and continued to try to sell us on the importance of bipartisanship, Nobody was really enjoying that. In fact, only one person in that crowd seemed excited about the prospect of bipartisanship.
4: We have a market, a bipartisan marketplace of ideas.
0: So what's the problem with bipartisanship and finding common ground? Because do I think those are inherently dirty words? No, I don't, to be honest. But when Democrats use the the word work together and find common ground and bipartisanship, really that's code for we're gonna roll over and die and allow the republicans to steamroll us and do whatever they want that's essentially what we've come to expect when we hear Democrats talk about bipartisanship. And this terrifies me. It doesn't bode well for the next two years. And here's what Nancy Pelosi and pro-bipartisan Democrats fail to grasp. At a time when the Republican Party has shifted so far to the right, when they're openly electing and re-electing racists and white supremacists like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Steve King in Iowa, respectively, when the president himself is an actual fascist, There's no finding common ground with these sorts of fucking people. Why is that so hard to grasp? Because if you meet maniacs halfway, you're tacitly legitimizing their lunacy. You're saying, I want to work with these crazy people and I'll meet them halfway. But the problem is that What are you even going to work with Republicans on? They're not putting forward an agenda that helps the American people in any way, shape, or form. All that they've proposed is to harm americans they want to cut medicare they want to cut social security and medicaid how are you going to find common ground when this party doesn't care to look out for the american people they only want to make the banks bigger the rich richer the poor poorer and they want more deregulation they want to make the wars more robust how are you going to find common ground with people who are right-wing extremists when a portion of the party is now fascist. How can you possibly convince them to work with you on anything that benefits the American people? The only way you're going to accomplish bipartisan legislation with this party is if you agree to hurt the American people. And now that you have the House You have to do everything in your power to obstruct them and stop the hemorrhaging that's been happening when it comes to our civil rights and civil liberties. Nobody wants you to get to Congress and sing Kumbaya. That's not why Americans gave Democrats the House back. We want you to stop the hemorrhaging. We've been hurting. And to say on night one after you win that I'm already willing to throw up the white flag, I mean, it's so demoralizing, Nancy. If I were Nancy Pelosi, I would immediately put forward a strong progressive agenda. I would promote Medicare for All, a nationwide recreational marijuana bill, net neutrality, ending the wars and bringing the troops home, more regulations on Wall Street, getting money out of politics, campaign finance law, and I'm not under the delusion that nancy pelosi and democrats would be able to get these passed but what you can do is send a message to the american people that this is what you can expect if you elect democrats and certainly if you promote these policy ideas you're helping to build a coalition for these ideas in congress ahead of democrats potentially retaking back all of government in 2020 but instead nancy pelosi She's choosing to send the opposite message that she should be sending right now. And the problem is that Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to promote these types of progressive policies because she's what some of us like to call... They call me a corporate pawn. So at a moment in history where every single day is a fight for our lives, we need a leader who's going to be bold, who's going to stand up to Donald Trump and not fold every single time... He or she faces criticism from the right for being obstructionist. We need someone who's going to be a fighter. That person is not Nancy Pelosi. That person is Barbara Lee. She's someone with a strong anti-war voting record. She supports Medicare for All, and she has decades of congressional experience. She's the very person for this time in american politics that can actually give us a ray of hope and it does seem as if nancy pelosi may not have the full support needed to become house speaker although it's very likely that she will still win anyway but i mean there's rumblings like there were in 2016 that there weren't going to be enough votes for her to win and it's the same people like tim ryan who are coming out and speaking out against her No, we don't need Tim Ryan, we don't need Nancy Pelosi, and we certainly don't need Steny Hoyer. We need Barbara Lee, and I took the liberty to create a petition for us to sign that indicates our support for Barbara Lee. Now look, before you comment and tell me that this petition isn't going to make a lick of difference, I hear ya, right? Because we're not going to be voting okay and odds are the people who will or won't be voting for nancy pelosi already made up their mind but the least that we can do is just put this petition out there and make our voices heard and let barbara lee know that if she chooses to run the entire progressive movement is going to be behind her and look I don't know if she even wants to be speaker. She's signaled that she's interested in a leadership position. I don't know if she's interested specifically in running for speaker, but I see already broad support for Barbara Lee. And this is only in progressive circles, so that's a bubble, right? But here's the thing, if she can actually run as house speaker and win, I think A lot of the country would actually feel rejuvenated and energized heading into 2020 because she's someone who actually is looking out for the people. Whereas Nancy Pelosi, she's already bragging about why she should be speaker because she raises a lot of money. Look, the message you're sending to the country and specifically the left is we're still not really willing to represent the working class because we're still going to take money from corporate donors. Now, at this point, I don't want to call Nancy Pelosi being House Speaker a foregone conclusion, but it's very likely that she does become House Speaker again. I really, really hope that I'm wrong. But look, in the meantime, just sign the petition or at least tweet to Barbara Lee and Democratic Party leaders, letting them know that we need to go in a new direction because Dem leadership, they haven't been doing enough and we need some new blood and that person, I think, who's perfect for this job at this point in time is Barbara Lee. To no one's surprise, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders was reelected. And during his victory speech, he gave what I think is a glimpse of what we'll see in 2020, because we all know he's likely going to be running again for president in 2020 so he kind of gave us a snapshot as to what we can expect and he fired off at donald trump he spoke about the policy substance as he usually does but he hit donald trump and he hit him pretty hard so this is what he had to say but more important than even these terrible policies is that we have a president of the united states who is a pathological liar and is doing something that no president in my lifetime has ever done. And that is, instead of bringing the American people together, he is trying to divide us up based on the color of our skin, based on where we come from, based on our religion, based on our gender, based on our sexual identity.
1: Our job is to tell this president that we
0: will not tolerate policies which are racist and sexist
3: and homophobic.
0: So the way that I view this is kind of as a soft launch for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. Because if you are going to make a speech in your re-election campaign and you're going to name the president. Who may one day be your opponent? I think that that says something. It's kind of him putting up the bat signal to progressives, saying you can be hopeful. Hindsight is 2020, and yes, I will be running. Now he states here, quote, that uh, Trump is a pathological liar, and he's called him that before, um, so it's not the first time. But it is important to reiterate that because it's true. There was an article from I think Newsweek that said Trump was averaging. 30 lies per day in the lead up to the midterm elections. Now, on average, he told about eight lies per day, but in the lead up to the midterm elections, he was averaging 30 lies per day. I don't care how unsurprising this is. We can never normalize this type of behavior. We can never normalize lies because facts matter. And as another soy boy likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings. And I think that we need to make sure that we point it out whenever Donald Trump lies because this is this type of misinformation, even if it is so idiotic and mind numbingly dim witted that anyone with half a brain can dismiss these things that he says at face. I mean, there's still a lot of people that buy into what he's saying. I mean, after he stated that millions of people voted illegally in the 2016 election, the number of his supporters that believed him. I mean, it was way too high. It's just what he says can never be normalized. So in repeatedly stating that Donald Trump is a pathological liar, it's not an attack. It's just a fact. If you are averaging 30 lies per day or eight regularly, you're a pathological liar. It's compulsive. He's probably not even aware that he's lying. He just says things and um, doesn't, doesn't really have any regard for if they're true or not. Now, he also says Trump is doing something that no president in my lifetime has ever done, and that is instead of bringing the American people together, he is trying to divide up, divide us up based on the color of our skin, based on where we come from, based on our religion, based on our agenda, and based on our sexual identity. So, um, yeah, needless to say, Bernie Sanders is not holding back. And this is going to be Pretty interesting going into 2020. I've already seen some petitions of people demanding that Bernie Sanders launch before the end of the year. And I think that there's certainly value in launching as soon as possible because the competition is going to be um it's gonna be pretty strong. I, I'm not gonna underestimate our opponents, but I really wanna emphasize that people need to take a break. I hope Bernie Sanders takes a good break and just rests until 2019 but i do hope he launches early so look bernie sanders is gonna run again and what he just said here in the speech is a glimpse at what he's going to be saying in 2020 he constantly echoed the sentiment that you know he was so prideful of the fact that he never ran a negative campaign ad in his life and he said this but a lot of us were saying you've got to run negative campaign ads you've got to hit your opponents hard because if the American people are on the line, then you can't afford to not be aggressive. And I feel as if Bernie Sanders is kind of being introspective and reflecting on what a lot of us are saying. Don't hold back. Attack Donald Trump relentlessly, even if I think all of us can agree that Bernie would have won if he were the nominee in 2016. Uh, Going into 2020, I do believe Trump will be more difficult to defeat i really feel that that's the case and i hope that i'm wrong but certainly even if polls show that trump is not the favorite to win we need to treat this as if he is the favorite never ever underestimate your opponent that's the one clear thing i think we all learned from 2016 and we've all got to put in the work and i know that a lot of you don't have the time or the energy to do that when you come home from working 12-hour shifts and multiple jobs, but any little thing that you can do to just spread the word, even if it's the most simple gesture, going to Facebook and saying, hey, register to vote at this day and time, you really can make a difference. I don't know how many family members I convinced to vote for Bernie Sanders, to register for the first time. If we all do this then on a macro level, we really can make a difference and understand that the day Bernie Sanders announces, I'm going to donate $27. I'm going to buy the shirts, the bumper stickers. I'm going to go all out because this is really a fight for our lives. And if we accidentally fuck up again and nominate someone that isn't best positioned to face Donald Trump, if Donald Trump gets a second term, could you imagine what that means for the Supreme Court? Could you imagine? I don't even want to think about the implications of him winning again because when it comes to the Supreme Court, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to think about that right now because it's too depressing. So, we need to fight like our lives depend on it because it absolutely does. And I will be doing everything I can to get the word out about Bernie Sanders. And you need to understand that there are going to be times in 2020 where you feel demoralized because corporate media is going to attack Bernie Sanders. They're probably going to dismiss his campaign and not really cover it. We're going to see a lot of the same. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more shenanigans from the DNC. They're probably going to try to fuck him over again. But understand, this is all to be expected. We have to plan for it and try to adjust in order to make him... Successful regardless. Overwhelm the polls, register new voters, sign up your friends and family. Meanwhile, don't short yourself on some much needed rest time. For those of you campaigning, hitting the streets every single day for Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke, take a much needed break and then we'll all regroup in 2019 and we will fight like hell. For bernie sanders because i have no doubt that he is the best bet to take on donald trump palestinian american rashida tlaib is one of two women to make history on tuesday night because her and ilhan omar became the first women ever to be elected to congress that are muslim that's really inspiring it sends a powerful message Right now, to other Muslim women across the country who see the president, who fear mongers, who uses fear as a motivator for his own base. I mean, it's constantly either immigrants or Muslims. Either way, he tries to paint a picture of them as the other, as if they're enemies. He had the Muslim ban that people like to now refer to as the travel ban, as if he didn't explicitly say that he wanted a complete and total shutdown of Muslims on the campaign trail. But nonetheless, he's been overtly bigoted towards Muslim women. And what I absolutely love is that Rashida Tlaib is showing that she is not going to take his bullshit. And she's quickly becoming one of my favorite progressives that were elected in this election cycle, because She punches Donald Trump and she punches him hard. And I wanted to share a tweet that she posted on Twitter right after she won. So she called out Donald Trump saying, if you think real Donald Trump's mad now, just wait until Fox and Friends starts talking about me and Ilhan Omar. You can't ban us from Congress. Now, the more that I think about this tweet, the more that I love it. So when you unpack it, what is she trying to communicate to Donald Trump? She's saying here, we are Muslim women and we are here and we're not going to take your bullshit. We're not going to lie down and allow you to continue ruining the country. I'm going to call you out by name, mention you on Twitter and let you know that we're not afraid of you. Your fear mongering will now be less effective because there are Muslim women in Congress who can communicate what we actually stand for rather than allowing you to control the narrative and monopolize discourse when it comes to, uh, Islam and being a Muslim American. So I'm so excited about her and she's really been pretty outspoken on a number of issues. So she was pretty outspoken against Nancy Pelosi saying she doesn't think she's going to vote for Nancy Pelosi because she doesn't speak about the issues and she's a firebrand progressive. She's taking over John Conyers seat and I fully expect her to carry on the torch of introducing Medicare for All because she's a strong supporter of that. So I'm really happy about Rashida Tlaib. And let me just say this, there's been a lot of historic moments in this election. We had two Native American women elected for the first time ever to Congress, which is just so striking to me that we never had Native American women win before. We had two Muslim women make history. We have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez become the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. And look, what's really important is that these are all candidates who, they've got the policy substance down, okay? They're actually progressive because we all, I think, can agree logically that policy is more important than anything else, because I wouldn't vote for you know a Muslim woman if she were Republican. I wouldn't vote for any Republican. Uh, so if if someone is progressive, that's number one. That's the most important thing. But if they're also making history and making Congress more diverse and more representative of the actual public, descriptively speaking, I still think that's a net win. I think that descriptive representation matters because growing up in America, if you're a Muslim woman, when there's all this bigotry. Uh, perpetrated by the Republican Party. To see someone in Congress represent you that looks like you, that does matter. And I know that it might not necessarily seem like that to other people, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's from one of these marginalized communities. For me, as a gay person growing up, there weren't very many gay role models. And that kind of leads to gay people and gay youth specifically thinking that, They have this sense of a foreshortened future because they don't have any role models, so they kind of don't really feel as if they can amount to anything because nobody in their community has amounted to anything. So this often leads people to feel depressed and maybe engage in destructive, self-harming behavior. But to see someone that looks like you represented, even if it may not seem like much, that really is powerful and it sends a really strong message. Um... But again, I think that we can all be thankful because Rashida Tlaib, she's not just representing Muslims descriptively, but she's representing American Muslims substantively. And she's representing all of us because she supports policies that would help the American people. But she's also going to be someone who's going to take a stand against Donald Trump, not just when it comes to his bigotry, but also when it comes to him attacking our earned benefit programs and attacking progressive policy priorities. So, um, I'm I'm really thankful at this race, um, and the way it turned out with regard to some of these progressive wins because we have a lot of really firebrand progressives headed to Congress now, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Deb Holland. You know, even if it's the case that this election overall was a mixed bag, I still feel a little bit rejuvenated knowing that we have people like Rashida Tlaib, who's not going to take any bullshit from Donald Trump, and who is already showing that. She's going to stand up to him and she's not afraid to call him out. Um, So, the trolling that we're seeing already from her, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does in Congress and I hope that these newly elected progressives control the narrative with regard to policy within the Democratic Party. Um, This is is good overall. I, I feel a little bit optimistic, cautiously so for the first time in a few years. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. I apologize for the redundancy because I know that this episode heavily features... All of our election coverage, which is now old news and which a lot of you have probably seen, which is why I moved all of the more relevant news to the front of the episode. But regardless, thank you all for watching. Uh, I truly appreciate it. And as usual, before we go, I want to send a thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which help the show to survive and also thrive. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week. I am very thankful about the fact that the election is over. Um, I was excited to start talking about 2020 pretty quickly after, you know, the midterms were over, but I need a break. (laughs) Just this nonstop election coverage is draining, not just to me, but to all of you. It's mentally exhausting. And look, take some time away from politics if you have the opportunity to do so. Play some video games, go on a walk, spend time with your family, because I think we all can use some much-needed rest, you know, before we start campaigning vigorously for 2020 um, and whatnot. So yeah, I'll see you all next week. Take care.